Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. Another episode of Keating Questions. We've done it before. I enjoyed it. I hope you did too. But thanks, sponsors, Top Spinini and Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, CompC.com, Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. Thanks, John Keating, for your questions. Other listeners, if you've got questions, send them in. John Keating, welcome to the show. Ready for your questions. Yep. You're a statistician, and no matter how much planning we know, I have a neighbor that's an actuary, and, and he doesn't seem to get it right a lot of the times, too, but you still need luck. What do you think was your luckiest break along the way, and whether it was in the collecting side or your business side of it? You could not have thought of everything. Things need to break your way. What was your luckiest break along the way? First of all, luck is a spiritual concept. If you're a non-theist, then luck is just luck with a lowercase l. If you're monotheistic with an active God versus a passive God, you think, wait, luck is (laughs) something that the big guy decides. And if you're a polytheist, then you think, hey, there's all kinds of competition and forces out there that we don't understand, and uh, we want to get in the flow. So regardless of how you look at that, when something good happens to somebody, they're trying to figure out, was I lucky? Or did I have some favor in some sense? Or were there some combination of good things I did that put me in that situation? I think some of the things that formed me and that created this luck situation, in your word, were failures. If I'd have been a better baseball player, as a late bloomer, if I'd have been an early bloomer, as Malcolm Gladwell gets into the 10,000 hours, I certainly played a lot of sports. If I'd have been an earlier bloomer, maybe I'd be playing sports and not gone the career path that I went. I I didn't think I was lucky that my parents moved a lot, but the fact that they moved a lot, it's easy for me to make friends uh, to some point. Uh, And cards were a great equalizer and sports were a socializing force in my life. I didn't regard those as positive luck, but now I look and then popping up or coming up right at the advent of personal computers. And before that, when I was getting my PhD, I had to do my own programming because there weren't these canned programs for many of these things. And so when I'm trying to do the price guides, I can do some level of programming to resolve things that would be hard to explain to, to somebody that understood programming who didn't understand cards. Sure. I think we're supposed to act as if there is no luck, that you're going to be a good person do the right Right. thing and that chips are going to fall your way to some extent, that things are going to work out pretty well. Again, no guarantees because we've both known people that have died untimely deaths who didn't seem to do anything wrong. But my pet peeve is people want to give God as they know it. They want to give God uh, all the blame, (laughs) except they don't believe it, but they want to give him the blame. It's his fault and it's not his uh, credit. So You've either got to give, wherever you're giving the credit, you got to give the blame. So exactly. same thing with your parents. My parents were a little bit strict on me. In some cases, I was the oldest of five. I expect to be a good example. I sure didn't think I was lucky. Again, there's a lot of firstborns that are entrepreneurial and are driven. On the other hand, being driven, I had a heart attack. Is that yeah. luck? It's just my heart. <laughs> I had blockage and I've still got a dead part of my heart. It'll never mm-hmm. come back, but I'm healthy now. But so luck is a tricky word. And so gotcha. we should try to do the, do the next right thing. And I, I don't think Roberto Clemente was lucky. I think he worked hard and he right. went up there uh, with a purpose to advance the runner or he wasn't thinking, hey, I'm going to swing for the fences so I can get the glory of a home run. He was thinking, what's going to help the team? You look at Franco though, right? Franco Harris. There has to be, there has to be a little luck there. That's physics, geometry. You're, you know. uh, yeah, but he's, his head is up. 
Right, <laughs> and I got you. And <laughs> yeah. his hands are down, and he's, he's a finely tuned athlete that's that's in the moment. And somebody else would have given up perhaps a little, a couple well, seconds it, earlier than him. But right? on the street, he was amazing and he knew what to do. Yeah. So is it, a, yeah, it's like a fluke. But right. again, there's a lot of people who would drop that. Yep, for sure. Or not, right. or fall on it or not know what to do. Or <laughs> right. Next question. I'm going to be honest with you. I cringe every time I hear the word wax, breaking wax, all that stuff, because I grew up with wax packs. Okay. Has a manufacturer considered bringing back a wax pack? They can wrap the cards and cello, but they could still wrap the outer with wax packs and the wax packs could have items printed on the interior that are collectible. So you ever heard of that being brought back true wax packs? I think it won't be. And here's the reason why is because the wax pack is not because the pack is made out of wax. It's because it's sealed with wax. Unless they come up with some friend Louis the 16th uh, ceiling or something, right. wax packs are pretty easily unsealed and resealed with a little bit of warmth. And right. so I, I think that's a problem. Whereas cello packs, even cello packs can be faked. I think the baseball card exchange, they have a special cello ceiling that they'll wrap these boxes. But I, I think the days of wax packs with wax sealed packs, I think that ship has sailed. You're telling me to move on from my childhood is what you're telling well, me. I think it's I mean, the people that are not moving on, Jeff Rosenberg, who's an outstanding guy, and Nat Turner that I had on, those guys are forming collections of wax packs, of going all the way back. Right. And, and they're not the only ones. And that's hard. Okay. And they're wax packs. And I'm just telling you right now, there is a way to gently just pop it up a little bit. At least they always know who's you. on the back. Yeah, I got and, uh, you. You know, and they actually could take it out and, and then put it back in. And so that's problematic. They said if you seal the inside contents, maybe somehow, and then a double ceiling for, for, for adornment. I have a wrapper collection that I don't think I can sell anymore. I, mean, well, I bought it 35 years ago, something like that. I think now it's obsolete. I wonder about ticket stubs. Yeah. Daddy, stubs what's, obsolete, Daddy right? what's a ticket stub? It's they're, yeah. they're digital mobile ticketing now. But yeah. Again, that's an artifact of the past. So, yeah. I'm a dinosaur. I get it. I will see. All right. So, your first national following your divestiture of Beckett publications, liberating, panic filled, or were you just numb? Neither. Basically, I think that what you're trying to get at did not occur at the first national that I went to afterwards. That would have been 05. In 05, I had sold a company in late January of 05. By summer of 05, I was pretty good buddies with uh, Peter, my successor CEO, liked him. I had a real sense of purpose at the Hawaii show that was six weeks after I sold. And then at the National, which was six months, I had a real purpose to try to, it was my brand, it had my name on it. I wanted to introduce Peter to the right people and make sure that there was an orderly transition. So I had a real sense of purpose that first year. Okay. Now, the second year, that's what you're getting at because Peter's, I said, hey, Peter, you want me to... Yeah, I got it now. Quite that blunt, but he needed to be his own man. Uh -huh. I understood that. And I still was not into really buying cards. I lost that muscle memory other than mm -hmm. like Rich and I used to do of picking up type cards. I'm sure I bought a few cards, but mm -hmm. to buy something to think, I just want this for my collection or I'm going to buy it because it's a good deal and I'm going to eventually sell it. That really didn't kick in for a few years. So I, I wasn't aimless because it was still connecting with the guys, some husbands and wives and that were that, that I'd known for a long time, that I had some margin in my life, I had some breathing room. Okay. And so for a few years, I wasn't aimless, but I didn't really have that 
focused sense of purpose. So now I actually try to think, I'm going to spend some time looking at cards and I'm going to buy some cards and I'm going to enjoy that. And I'm going to have some time to connect with friends too. But and I didn't really have that sense of purpose. The first year I did, second, third, fourth, not as much. Gotcha. Next question draws on your math background. And my question to you, the way I posed it to you was, there's no hobby like ours. Uh, the one thing that's unique is the age uh, demographics. So it has to have shifted from when I was a kid. W- when was that shift? We know that this industry, at least in the uh, 50s, was built around 7 to 12-year-old kids buying baseball cards. When did that change, do you think? When cards started to become more than a dollar a pack. I, I don't ever remember buying more than two packs at a time, which mm-hmm. would have been a dime. I don't remember ever having a dollar to buy 20 packs or a buck 20 to buy a box of 24 packs that were a nickel in those days. I, I, I don't remember that. So I'm scraping up, not bottle caps, but the returnable bottles and things like that. And when a little bit of money, maybe for my parents or some chores, I don't remember getting an allowance when I'm 10 or 11 years old, but that I, I just didn't have very much money. And I don't think my friends did either. Where do you think the median now, is now? You have to have dollars you have to even participate. I'm just curious what the median is now. Of age? Of collecting? Yeah. Yeah. I know collecting is a broad term, but you go to these shows and I know when I was a kid going to those shows in Valley Forge, it was there was adults there, but it was a, a nice blend of young and old. But now it seems like everybody is at least in their 20s and 30s and the outliers are the younger kids. But all the, the younger kids are coming up now, but it just seems like it's skewed a lot towards 30. Well, I think there's always been a generational transfer. My dad, a lot of these 30-somethings in the hobby, either their dad collected or they collected when they were 10 or 12. Mm-hmm. The 10 or 12-year-olds I see at the shows are there with their dads more so. The 18-year-olds, the 28-year-olds, the 38-year-olds, they're on their own. And there's some of them that just popped up and never collected as a kid and just heard this was a fun thing. And it's not hard to get up to speed if you have a limited focus. If you're just saying, I'm just going to go after Luca, then you can, that's the beauty of the hobby is whether you're old or young, other than the size of their wallet, the kid can keep up with the parent. The kid's got free time, can be studying up the comps and understanding what's the the rarities. If I were to trade with an 18-year-old, that 18-year-old has a chance of getting the best of me. Oh, for sure. He's trading. It's not that many things where you can do that. So I think that's a dynamic element that's good. I've got one more question, inserts, and I'm not talking about modern day inserts. What was the impetus for Tops to throw in game cards and and scratch-offs and tattoos? Was it strictly marketing back in the 60s? It had to be marketing. It's additional cost. I think you'll find in a lot of them, some of the baseball issues would be a function of the later series sometimes. The, the, the first series be out, the second series be out. If there's lagging interest, oh, hey, now the oh, gotcha. box for the third series, hey, we got a little coin in here, or a decal or a transfer or something like that. Yeah, because they didn't have any competition. That's why I They had competition, asked, but know. they had competition in the sense of the, the lagging sales. They wanted to get the viral buzz of the kids in the neighborhood. Hey, you got it. the third series is out. Guess who's in there? That's why they always put the checklist cards in the previous series. They, hey, some buzz, the yeah. panels in the next series. But I think some of those inserts were trinkets. Yeah, know, they were like Cracker Jack prizes. Yeah. Cracker Jack wasn't putting in these little plastic toys. They, they cost a penny. A lot of these things yeah. that Tops made didn't even cost a penny. Why did they release cards in series? You have to ask Cyberger. I think. Did Bowman do it as well? One of the reasons they, they had to do it, they didn't have to do it, but I, I, even Play Ball probably did it. Even Gowdy may have done it in the sense that. When we find these uncut sheets, they were 
they're in numerical order a lot of times that the first mm-hmm. series and Gaudi, same thing, play balls, same thing. A lot of those sets, if you're going to have a bigger set, that's bigger than the number of cards you can fit on the printing form. So why print both of them up? If you can wait tops in some cases took advantage of trades or other movements. Yeah. It just seems um, odd that they would print series and then they'd have to put inserts in there to get you to buy. It seems like they were, uh, I think they themselves in the foot, to, right? to put all, 572 cards in there that they, they may even have had machine issues of sorting. If you've been to a printing like a graphic converting or Cardamundi, they print out the sheet and then the sheet kind of gets chopped up and goes through this conveyor belt. And then they're randomized and, and put into packs. And then every certain number of packs has a card from this other pouch that, that goes in, that's inserted, that's the one per five packs insertion ratios. Mm-hmm. Okay. That breaks down. But in the day, I don't know that they had five different sheets that they were feeding together. I got you. It, it may have been all the capacity they could handle is just to, to keep it simple, that it's 132 cards max and easy to put something else in there. I'm enjoying your show in uh, the 70s. I think the late 60s really were the transitional part of our culture. Okay, uh, but by the '70s, it, it was in full view, and, and I think there was some great baseball some there. For the some for the better. Yeah, I, I just I think they, they had a great product. Baseball. There were a lot of dynasties in the '70s, but they were great teams. Yeah, so. and personalities. I think there, there you were allowed to have a bigger personality. In Reggie, the, Reggie in epitomizes Reggie, all Reggie that. Right, really did that. I met Reggie. I don't know how many years ago. He's a very bright guy and and very. He is egotistical. That's not a doubt. There's nothing wrong with confidence. And he's always been an outstanding athlete, but he wasn't as big a guy. He's broad, Uh but he's more of a fire plug than a a six foot three, 200 pounders. He was five foot nine, 200 pounds. Crazy. And full of muscle. Ended up on his knees after swinging. It was was (laughs) fun thing to watch. Yeah. Mr. October. Yep. The man in the house of cards. The man in the house of cards The man in the house of cards Is doing all 